The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We have been preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the book of 1 Corinthians is basically, uh, if you look at the back cover of your Bible, and then you go in about 100 pages, you are at the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we are doing, we're preaching through this book slowly, and we're taking it a few verses at a time under the banner of uh, good news for bad Christians. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians was written to um, a ragamuffin group of Christians in the city of Corinth, which was basically like a uh, New York City and Las Vegas all combined into one. It was a rocking place, and they were trying to figure out what it was like to follow Jesus amidst having all their own internal issues. And so... That's what we're working through. So we're picking back up now in the fall, and we're in chapter 10. And so we're going to be reading uh, verses. Uh, I'm going to actually read verses 1 to 14, and then we're going to pick off verses 1 to 7 for this morning, and I'll explain that as we go through. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 14. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did and not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Let's pray. God, as we look at this passage together, as we look at all of these stories that are combined into one place for the Corinthian church to help them flee idolatry, I pray that you would instruct us by your spirit, teach us by your spirit to not only be able to assess and see and understand idolatry in our own lives, but to find its cure in Jesus. So we pray this in his name. Amen. When I ask, what is idolatry? I'm not sure that word or that phrase really means very much to us today. Uh, when we think about the word idolatry, when I use the word idolatry, uh, some of you may be thinking of the old Indiana Jones movies. Um, I was looking it up and seeing how it's currently used. Um, in the Boston Globe most recently, Um, In February of 2018, they had about 74 uses of the word idolatry in the Boston Globe in their record. The phrase that was used, we are a nation that worships at the altar of the gun and and that idolatry is killing us. 
or to quote from the Washington Post, right the other side of the coast, uh, maybe the GOP business wing can get past Trump's odd idolatry of tariffs so long as he hates regulation even more. It's funny to me that the word idolatry may be more used in our culture when we use that word. It has a political connotation, right? Your obsession with something I don't like is kind of what we mean with idolatry, with that phrase, which is actually not too far off the mark from what the Bible means by idolatry. Idolatry uh, is actually a key theme in the Bible. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, idolatry is a key theme that runs through the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. In the Old Testament, you regularly have stories of God saving his people, blessing his people, and then within a few verses, there's comments about, but then they went up to the hills to the idols. <laughs> it's constant like this sway back towards idolatry. And then you have on the other side of it, God's always regularly judging idols, right? He's calling out the Babylonian idols, the Egyptian idols. I mean, he's just going left and right throughout the Middle East, just kind of saying, you're idolatry. That happens all through the Old Testament. It even picks up in the New Testament, right? Where you might think like, well, that was the Old Testament and they had all those idols back then and they had a lot of masons that made idols. New Testament's a little bit nicer, God. You find it in odd places in the New Testament. If you ever, if you ever think about this category, this word, idolatry, you have the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John is like one of these, verses, like these books that kind of gets co-opted and talked about all the time for the Christian life, sometimes even read in weddings, right? God is love. Right? That's the book of 1 John. God is love. He's made you in his love. He's saved you in his love. He's purified and redeemed you in his love. And then you come to the very last verse of the book of 1 John. Little children, keep yourself from idols. <laughs> it's a very odd ending to a book that's all about the love of God. And at the end, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idolatry is a major theme throughout the whole Bible. And Paul is picking it up here because... Maybe there is something that the Bible sees about our hearts that sticks and stones and metal castings and idols give us a window into, right? The Bible actually views the human heart, the very center of who we are, as being worshipers. We are creatures that worship. At our most fundamental level, we are worshipers, and we must worship something. We are designed to worship something. We are worship factories. We are worshiping all the time. Or you might even say that this is the word motivation. Our motivations are grabbing after something. They're latching onto something. Our hearts are after something on a regular basis. And the Bible may be more perceptively than our psychology words today just calls that idolatry or worship when it's idolatry gone bad or when it's worship gone bad. The Bible just says that there is something that is actually someone that motivates our hearts most deeply, that motivates us deep down. You see this in the beginning of the Ten Commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind. Well, actually, the, that's the summary of the Ten Commandments. You shall love the Lord your God and have no other gods before me. That's how the Ten Commandments start, which is to say our hearts are going to have to love God and be at war with the other gods that would distract us on a regular basis. We are going to be going after gods or God and that is what this passage is kind of getting at. This is a bit of a strange passage, right? We're reading it, and you've got, um, you've got a rock that's called Jesus or Christ. You've got people going through the waters and then being baptized into Moses. What does that even mean? You've got people that are being killed by serpents left and right. You've got people 
that have idols that are going to the temple to eat, um, eat, eat meals with the temple prostitutes. In the midst of all of that, Paul, as a pastor for the Corinthian church, is trying to help them see that at the heart of our problems, at the heart of who we are, the hearts that, that we struggle with is idolatry, right? We may think of, I just recently been watching the Indiana Jones movies with my boys, and you've got that opening scene to Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark where he's got the idol. We may think the idols are out there, but they're really in here, right? You see, if you just kind of begin to drop your eyes down to the passage with me, verse 6 and 7, you see chapter 10, now these things took place as examples to the, for us that we might, might not desire evil as they did. Notice that word desire. He's getting into, he's kind of opening the door to idolatry language. Desire evil as they did. And then he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, people sat down to drink and rose up to play. And then he ends this section that we're kind of working through. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. But his entry gate into what is idolatry is desires. It is in the motivations of our hearts. Right? There is something that we are supposed to begin to see on the inside of how we function that causes these external idolatries to happen. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to be taking this passage, verses 1 to 14. We're going to be spending three weeks on it because we want to take our time to kind of understand this. It's, we're kind of trying to open up the hood of the heart and see how we function and how the gospel changes us. So we're going to kind of be focusing on verses 1 to 7 this morning. We're going to pick up on a few more verses next week and then the next week out. Jay's going to lead us through finishing up the section. But we're working through this whole category of what is idolatry? And this morning we were just answering the question, idolatry, what is the identity of idolatry? And we're just going to be saying it's counterfeit gods. Right, counterfeit gods. That's what the, that's that's what this passage is going to be leading us through. And so, verses one to seven, as you can see, the main point that we're going to be looking at in verses one to seven is basically saying we need to be seeing idolatry clearly, which leads us to its cure in Jesus. Right. If you have a problem physically and you go to the doctor, you want a clear diagnosis so that you know how to find the cure. Actually, the clear diagnosis is the first step towards a cure, isn't it? Right. If you think you've got a headache and it turns out you've got a tumor, <laughs> Motrin's not going to help you with your tumor, is it? So a clear diagnosis of what's going on actually is the first step towards the solution towards its cure. So what we're going to do is we're going to work through this passage, and I, I promise I'm doing my best to, to be clear and to hold this passage together and to not get on tangents or rabbit trails, because this passage actually has a lot for us and, and my, my, my pastoral counseling hat says there is a lot for us to understand and how we care for each other. And so, like, just bear with me if I get on rabbit trails. But we're going to try to focus in and keep working through verses 1 to 7. We're going to pick up in verses 1 to 5. First thing we're going to pick up on is idolatry is enslaving. Jesus gives freedom, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to capture these in the kind of four categories that we're working through. How do we identify idolatry? And the first one we're going to be picking up is that idolatry is enslaving. In contrast, Jesus gives freedom. So verses 1 to 5, let's read this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased 
And they were overthrown in the wilderness. Right? Idolatry is a word that's used all through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's used about 15 times. And here Paul is beginning to lead us into this category by talking about the relationship of idolatry to all the people of God. Right? I just want to remember, we'll step back for a second. The Corinthian situation back in chapter 8 was that they were going to temples that worshipped idols, and as a part of the economy of how that worked, is that they would sacrifice meat to those idols, and then they would eat it, basically saying, thanks, idol, I'm going to be eating now in your honor. Thanks for the food. Like, they get their freshly petted, organically fed meat from the idol, and now here they are worshipping under the idol. And what Paul is beginning to show them is that your experience with what that drama is... uh, living out for Corinth, right, being tempted to go back to the temples to get the food sacrificed to idols, is very similar, is an echo of the story that you see in the book of Exodus. So the book of Exodus is a quick review. God's people were under the boot. They were enslaved. They had been enslaved and persecuted for 400 years. God sends Moses to lead them out of being enslaved. They walk through the waters of the Red Sea on dry land miraculously. And then when they walk through the waters, the waters crush down upon their enemies, destroy them, and they sing God's praises and walk and meet God at a mountain where they learn what does it mean now to be a part of God's family. That's the book of Exodus, right? And along the way, that's what this story is describing. They still grumble. They still complain. They've got idols tucked in their back pocket that they occasionally pull out and worship. And then uh, the most offensive thing of all, Exodus 32 They get to basically the footstep of God's house where they're going to get the family instructions of what does it mean to follow God. And then while they're waiting, they get a little impatient and they say, you know what, we're going to make a golden calf. Boom, throw the gold in the water. We're going to come back to this story in a minute. Pull out the golden calf and say, actually, it was the golden calf that saved us. After being miraculously saved, right, they had the 10 plagues. We didn't even talk about that where God destroys the idols of Egypt. They walk through on dry land through the Red Sea. They are fed miraculously with manna from heaven. They are given water miraculously out of a rock. And yet still, they struggle with trusting God for who he is. Because I think what Paul is saying in this story here is that, did you see all these words, all? Brothers, our fathers, right? So these Israelites and the Gentiles of Corinth, they're all the same. Our fathers, right? They weren't natively... Um, Hebrews of the Old Testament, but they are called our fathers by faith. So they're all one big family of God. And then he just emphasizes, right, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all ate the same spiritual drink. Seems like he's kind of making a point. All people wrestle with idolatry. (laughs) Right? All people are carrying in their back pockets of their heart these idols that we kind of come out and kind of worship at moments in time where we don't really get what we want and we start going to these idols because somehow God's disappointing us. Right? There is an idolatry that is coming out that he is showing us that shows that they, um, they are, in this story, entrapped by their motivations that God is not satisfying. You too, Corinthians are being called back to the idols of the heart with the meat on the table. So I just want to unpack a little bit 
remind us, because we talked about this back in May, I presume that nobody remembers, because I had to remind myself, and I'm the one that preached a sermon on 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, what was going on. You remember in Corinth, it wasn't just that they went to the Whole Foods market and got organically fed meat, right? In their day and age, what happened was when you sacrificed meat or food at the temple and then sat down to eat, that's where the business of the day, of the day happened, right? That's where you had your Thanksgiving meal, your family reunions, and everybody kind of connected this family, like, hey, we're all the youngs, like, we're going to, here's the meat, everybody. But then you also made business deals. Like, you imagine, like, the Godfather, basically, right? You just kind of all sit down, and this is where the family business happens. And then you come to Christ, and you realize that idolatry is offensive to God, and I don't know if I feel comfortable sitting down and eating, honoring this idol. What Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 is basically saying, like, well, pick up the meat and eat. It's no big deal because idols don't exist. However, if you're being tempted back to, let me get Jesus plus the pagan culture of my day to get the benefits of the Godfather Corinthian situation, right, to kind of tip my hat back to getting the things the way they, they did things, then you're wrestling with idolatry. Then you're wrestling with the motivations to what? You know what? Jesus, it's costing a lot. I'd like to get a little bit of some provision, a little bit of some comfort, a little bit of some safety from my old pagan ways. Let me get Jesus. I want Jesus, but I want the safety and comfort, security and comfort of the idolatry of my, my culture. Wait, I think that might be what's going on with, Corinthian, with the Corinthian church. It's interesting that food is his entry gate into talking about what idolatry is. That's what he does with 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. It's often how we have, find idols in our own heart, right? Food can represent a number of idols in our own lives. So, for example, if I'm hung, hangry, right? You know the word hangry? I'm angry and hungry at the same time. I'm hangry. I'm, I'm hangry and I must get food now. I walk in the door. We cannot do anything as a family. We cannot talk about anything. I'm going to be irritable and resentful and mean to my family until I get that food and stuff it in my face. And now, okay, now we can talk. But you see, at a functional level, there is an idol happening in that moment. Food has now legitimized me being angry and irritable with my family. I get things on my terms. You must orbit around my anger. And then food becomes salvific. Food becomes something that saves my soul, saves my anger to be happy with other people. Now I've created an idol. Or I want to look good. I want to be fit. I want to, I want to be accepted within the fitness community. And so I eat certain foods, I give my, my money to certain uh, programs, I give my time and effort towards a certain food dynamic, and now I get acceptance, recognition, and I'm associated with a certain social class, right? Their food dynamics were not all that different than ours, are they, right? Food is a great indicator of where our idols are. And I hope you hear me, it's okay to be frustrated and want to get a meal. <laughs> It's okay to want to eat healthy and all that stuff. But there is a dynamic where the idols of our hearts could be co-opting and the motivations of our heart going on could be using these good things to become ways to legitimize our own motivations and frustrations and idols in our hearts. 
So let's go back to the text here. I know we kind of bounced, we're kind of bouncing around a little bit, but you'll notice that he says, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the, ate the same spiritual drink. Right? He is using a basically saying in the story of Exodus, there is a uh, baptism that happens for God's people, which is to say, um, even people who trust in Jesus, even people who are part of God's family, it's not just um, people who don't know Jesus that have idols in their hearts that need to be addressed. It is actually the people of God who often and regularly have idols that come out that we need to be addressed. And their baptism, frankly, was a shadow, a pointer, right? It pointed towards what God was doing, but it wasn't the full deal. Baptism regularly um, is a picture through the whole Bible. It begins actually in Genesis 1 and 2, right? You have God's, God's land that gets jutted up out of the sea. The waters of judgment bring forth the promised land. You have Noah, right? The waters of judgment destroy God's enemies, and out of that comes the land that delivers God's people. You have the story of Exodus, where we've just been talking about, where people walk through dry land, through the waters of judgment, and are delivered to God's people. It happens again in the book of Joshua. God's people walk through dry land, into, from, through the waters of judgment, into God's land, and here in baptism, Christian baptism, basically what we're saying is those things that should have destroyed you are now being destroyed in God's grace to you, right? He has delivered you through the judgment that you deserve. Moses led his people in Exodus, and he was a bad savior, <laughs> right? He got a bit of a temper. He was a bit of a coward. Jesus leads us through baptism as a perfect leader and savior, right? He is the one that gives actual true freedom because the idols that we should be consumed by and destroyed by are the very ones that he has come to destroy, right? Moses didn't know the hearts of all the people, although he was regularly frustrated with them, wasn't he? Jesus knows our hearts and sees the freedom that we need. And so the story of Exodus is a pointer forward for the freedom that we find in Jesus. Right? Idols have a nagging way of being like, has anybody ever accidentally gotten your hand kind of stuck in a, one of those gnarly fish, fishing line things? You know what I'm talking about with all the hooks on it? You know what I'm talking about? Like with like the 10 hooks on a fishing thing? Is it, am, I, am I tracking? Okay, we got a few people who know what I'm talking about. The rest of you have never been fishing in your lives or been to scout camp. Right? If you get your hand on one of these things with 10 of them, like, it's just hard to get all the hooks out, right? Idols tend to be kind of like that for us. They are enslaving. Like, we get hooked in them, and we just can't quite figure out how to get ourselves out of them, get ourselves free from the hook that they have on us, because they tell a narrative that often reinforces what we want, right? But they are enslaving. There is a deeper spiritual freedom from idolatry that Jesus has come to liberate us from. He has come to free us from the deeper idols of our hearts. So, we're going to ask a few questions, then we're going to move on to the next point. Answer this question for your own life. I cannot be happy without fill-in-the-blank. I must have fill-in-the-blank to be happy. Maybe it's, I must have obedient children. I must have a successful job. I must have a happy marriage. I must have success. I must have recognition. I must be the one preaching up front. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, if you really hate yourself that much. 
I cannot be happy without X achievement. I cannot be happy without reaching this level in my video game. I cannot be happy without these things going on in my life. If that's a question you can honestly answer, that's probably an enslaving idol that's going on in your life, right? There's probably a dynamic going on where you want something more than you want God. Idols control us, and we feel like we must have them or life is meaningless. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power, for example, is controlled by power. The person who seeks comfort is controlled by comfort. We can keep going on, and like I said, I can get on all these rabbit trails, but I want to keep us moving forward through this passage. So we're going we're to kind of circle back here a little bit, verses 3 to 5, and we're going to see that idols cut up the soul. Jesus is life-giving food, verses 3 to 5. Right? They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, and they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them... God was not pleased, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. The way, the, where, where I'm getting this dynamic of we, idols uh, cut up the soul is this last little phrase here. Nevertheless, um, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That word overthrown in the wilderness is uh, the image that's used there is basically through the book of Exodus, their bodies were scattered through the desert. They, they were all divided up. They were, they were destroyed. They were, they were set, across, set across the desert as they walked through the land. They were just kind of, because of their idols and their disdain for God's goodness to them, they were just all cut up. Right? That's, that's the image of what's going on here. An, an idol is something that, that cuts us up and just constantly is hammering and hurting us. Right? Basically, the book of Exodus is God lets them get what they want. Idols... Paul is leading us to see, always take and want more. Idols always lead us to have a painful soul. Right? That, that's the image here, right? They, they were led through the desert with God. They, he led before them. He showed them his goodness. He provided for them miraculously, and yet they still had these inner issues where they wanted something more than God. And because your soul is made to be happy in God, it will always be pain. It will always be painful when we try to get thing, God's things in our own way. That's kind of what's going on here, right? Idols cut up the soul. And they, they, they hit us in, in, in various ways, various places, and we just, it's hard to see them. I, I find this in my own life. I read a book called, um, when, by Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God Is Small, about this whole category of, of an idolatry of acceptance with other people over, and over being accepted with God. I read that 10 years ago. And it, it massively just like, it like turned on the lights for me to see. I actually have an idol in my own life of wanting to be accepted and prove myself to other people on a regular basis constantly. And I saw that 10 years ago. And it is only recently that I've begun to realize it's not just that I like, I like other people more than I like God. Is that I want to prove myself to people on a regular basis. I have an idol in my own life of trying to prove myself and gain people's acceptance on a regular basis that is deep and functional and pervasive. Right? It is constantly a pain in my own soul. Right? So you see this when, for example, in my own life, when I, I get anxious and I can't sleep at night because of some decision, and how is it going to play out? If I make this decision, how is the church going to accept it? 
Are they going to reject me? Is there going to be a frustration? Are people going to leave? Are people going <laughs> to hate me? Because I'm trying to exalt within my own heart. I must prove myself to people at all times. I must prove that I'm not just a good pastor. I'm a perfect pastor. Right? I must prove to you. That is the idol that I have regularly. And I say that kind of like, you're like, oh, like, well, then if you see it, like, why is it a problem? <laughs> like, can't you just like repent of it and it goes away? No, because it is a regular thing that I, I put in the back pocket of my heart and then I'll come out and I'm like, did they like the meeting? How was the sermon? You know, what, it seemed like maybe they, some, so-and-so didn't really like what I said or they ignored me and walked away. Am I proving myself? It is a pain to my own soul. As a friend of mine recently observed, you seem to operate as though you must prove your value by proving yourself capable in everything. So it's not just that you're doing a lot, but that with every situation, your value and identity are on the line. It is exhausting, grinding, and painful for your soul. That is what it is like when you have an idol that exists that must be satisfied. It cuts up the soul. It is a painful experience. And can we just acknowledge each one of us has a painful soul because our idols have not been met on a regular basis. It is how each of us walks into the room. And yet in contrast to that, what Paul does is he turns our attention not to suck it up, get over yourself, he actually turned our attention to Jesus. Do you see this in this passage? This is probably, this is a part of the, and Jesus is life-giving food, right? So idolatry, <laughs> idolatry cuts up the soul. But here we, he says, verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food and all ate the same spiritual drink and they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ, right? What he's referring to is actually the original rock song of the entire Bible is Deuteronomy 32. I'll leave you to go read that later this afternoon. But in that story, it captures all through the book of Exodus, God's people are basically followed by God's grace, and they are fed water in the desert, right? Anybody's seen the desert in a movie or actually been there? There's no water. <laughs> they are given free water from a rock in the middle of the desert, and that rock regularly just gushes forth water when they pray. But there's a story in there where, where Moses gets so angry and frustrated with the people for being idolatrous towards God that he strikes the rock. And that's actually what keeps him from going into the promised land. But you see in this story, that in Deuteronomy 32, it talks about the rock, his, way, his work is perfect, and all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. It also says, forsaken and scoffed is this rock through the Old Testament. And he, then his people, his, God's people were unmindful of the rock that bore them. The picture that's going on in the book of Exodus, when this rock is giving forth water and it's struck, is that the very God that's providing for you is the one that's wounded by you. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like a story that we have in the New Testament at all? Anybody, anybody want to raise your hand and say, I think that might be anybody but Jesus, <laughs> right? 
Here is a story that's showing us that Jesus himself is the one who feeds his people by God's grace, even at the expense of his own life. Love for his people, his love to free them from their idols, his love for you to give you freedom and liberty is at the cost of his own life. Right? He is regularly, he is the one who is struck by our idols. He is the one that is struck for the wrath of God, for our idols, so that he can be our life-giving food. Right? He is not a God who is distant and is saying, prove yourself to me and then I'll give you what you need. Right? He's not saying, get rid of all these cluttered hearts and these idols in your life and then I'll give you what you need to overcome your fear and failure and sin in your life. He's actually saying, the very things that have caused you pain are the things that have struck my heart and out of my heart flows the grace that you need. That is the picture of what's going on here. So that's, that's why he says, very point blank, verse, end of verse 4, and the rock was Christ, in case you missed it, right? The very one that is going to be your, your, your standing place, your solidity, your, your life, he is the one that provides the grace that you need. Right? See, what we're trying to capture here in these verses is that idolatry is self-soul harm. To quote the doctor himself, Tim Keller, an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it. Therefore, it drives us to break rules we once honored to harm others, even ourselves, in order to get it. Right? All of us have experienced, why did I do that to get this? And this has always disappointed me, whether it's acceptance with other people, whether it's sex or drugs, whether it's power or family acceptance or a job, that has always not satisfied us. It has always left us with a pang of regret that I did this to get that. That is where the idolatry dynamic comes in. Idols cut up the soul. Jesus gives life-giving food. Jesus is always better than our idols. All right, we're going to pick up here in verse 6. I promise we're going to move towards an ending here. Idolatry is hard to see. Jesus empowers through examples. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Right, he starts out in verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, and then he tells a story of the book of Exodus, and then he, he lands us here, and these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Here is the reality about the Bible. Um, it really doesn't matter um, who you are. Story, stories speak to our souls. Stories speak to who we are. 75% of the Bible is a story, right? This whole big book, you're kind of like, man, it's boring. I don't understand what's going on in this. It's all random. It's all stories. 75% of it is stories told through to show God loves broken people, and he even loves broken people that continually do bad stuff. That's why the book's so big, because we're so bad. That's basically it. But 75% of the Bible is stories. 15% of it is poetry, because poetry captures our desire for goodness and glory. And then only 10% of it is just straight on instruction, right? Do this, don't do that, that type of stuff. And I think the reason that, that Paul has this here is because what we've been talking about is seeing idols in our own lives. And maybe you're just kind of, tra you're, you're tracking with me, you're just kind of like, yeah, but what does that look like in my life? Well, that's why we need stories and examples. We need to see this played out in other people's lives. So we need to read through the whole, read through the, the, the narrative and stories of the Old Testament and see, oh, I'm just like David. <laughs> 
because David knew what he was supposed to do, and then he got a little lazy, and then he got a little distracted, and then he stumbled into a big old mess with somebody that he should have been hanging out with. And then, what does he do? Well, now he's going to cover up his tracks and think that nobody's going to see it, and then God calls him out. Actually, I need stories like that for my own life because I just can't see idols in my own life straight on. Like, they're not, they're not something you see straight. You have to see them from the side. And that's why the narratives of the Old Testament, all, all the New Testament are there for us. So that we can identify not with the heroes, so that we can identify with the messy people and say, okay, they had that dynamic going on, and God spoke grace and goodness to them. I need that too. Because here's the other thing about having examples. What do you see in those examples? Who's the main character in those examples? It's God. His patience. Right? God's not looking to flick you off the face of the earth. Right? He's not looking and watching you. He's going to walk out the, ho- the front doors of the front, ho- uh, front of hope and just kind of flick you off to the moon. <laughs> He's actually very patient with us. And that's, how, that's why the Bible is so big is it tells a very big story of a very patient God who has people that are messed up and have idols in their lives on a regular basis who regularly give their fist to God, and yet he comes down by his grace to soften and open that hand to walk with him. That's why the Bible is so big and these examples are so long. It's because God's patient heart is so big. His patience comes because he is committed to our liberation from our idols. Right? Often, we want immediate relief. I see a problem in my own life. I see, a pro- I, I see oh, I, I idolize people. <laughs> Whatever it is. I want control. I want power. I want pleasure on my own terms. And somehow we think, oh, if I'm going to see that now clearly, now it's going to be gone. <laughs> right? You know, like a little magnifying glass, like, oh, we see it, and then we burn it right off. You know what I'm talking about? That's not the way any of us work. Occasionally it works like that, where God will miraculously deliver somebody from something. But generally, the story of the, old, of the whole Bible is that it takes time, like a field in New Hampshire, to root out the rocks, right? To take out the rocks of the soul to make it good and fertile. It takes time. And if there's anything that those examples show us, man, I am so glad that God is a gracious, patient God who's going to work with me and help me and not get frustrated with me. So, I want us to have a long view in mind. I want us to see, you know what? I don't need to hunt down idols and punch them. (laughs) But I also don't want to do that with each other, right? We are long-term projects of grace. If you see idols in my life, I want to know. If you see things, hey, you know what? There might be things we need to work on here. Let's work on that. But please, let's be kind to each other and not expect immediate change, right? If you see something in each other or in your spouse or your friends, let's just not say, you know what? I think you, you really got angry. Is there something that you're wanting to control there? What's going on? Well, oh, yes, there is something I'm trying to control here. I will never be in control again. That's not the way our souls work, right? We take time. So let's be kind in our assessment of other people. Let's be kind in how we work with each other to find that grace that liberates our souls and empowers us through Jesus. It's better to be healed by love than facts 
and that takes time. For God to love to liberate us from our idols, it takes time. Facts from the Bible do not immediately fix the soul. But Jesus comes in to empower us through these stories to see he is with you to change you in the long run. Okay, can we finish up here, verse 7? Idols take God's place. Jesus takes our place. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. See, this is the, the, the shocking dynamic of the story here. I'm going to actually read for us from 30, Exodus 32. Because here is, I just want to remind us, we've been talking about this. God has destroyed the prevailing global power at the time in a massive flood that saved his people at the same time, walked them through the desert, feeding them by birds and random food that shows up in the morning and water from a rock. And they get to God's mountain to receive God's word, his law. This is what it means to be in his family. And then this is what we read in Exodus 32. When the people sat, saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves before, together to Aaron, so that's Moses' brother-in-law, and said to him, Up, make us gods. Sorry, it's his brother. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And for this Moses, as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has come of him. He's been away for a month and a half. We don't know what's going on with him. Let's figure this out. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and they received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, there are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made, made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. I don't think I included verse 6, but here's verse 6, which we get quoted in verse 10 in, in 1 Corinthians. And they rose up the next day and offered burnt offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So here they are in front of God's house waiting to hear what does it mean to be in God's family? And they say, you're taking too long. You're not doing this in our timeline. You've taken 40 days. All right, we're going to figure this out on our own. We're going to throw all of our gold into this fire, and then we're going to take all these tools out and craft an idol for us. And then what, is ha what happens? Moses comes down the mountain because God said, my people have forsaken my ways. They're going to false gods. Moses comes down. If you remember seeing the old Ten Commandments movie, I don't know if anybody remembers that movie at this point. He's like, ah, and throws down the, the, the Ten Commandments, breaks them over the people's head, angry over the idols, takes the idols, burns them up in, up, up in fire, takes the gold, put it in water, makes them drink the water. I, I mean, it's insane, right? I mean, I don't, I don't even know if John Wick would do that, right? But here we have, story ends, verse 21, and Moses said to Aaron, why, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, right, this is, so we just read the story, and now here's Aaron's recollection of that story. Uh, Let not the anger of my Lord be burned hot. Uh, you know the people, that they are set on evil. And they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any of you have, uh, any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. 
Sorry. It's one of the most comedic moments. It's like these people are just called like, are you that stupid, bro? I'm like, you don't just throw gold into a fire and out pops like a handicraft uh, golden calf, right? Like that's just not the way it works. And yet that is what they try to play off. They are at the foot of this mountain, and what they want is somebody to go before them to offer security, provision, protection, to meet their inner needs. And God was not doing it in his own time. He was not doing it on their timeline. And so they said, we are going to do something about this. You can hear the drama of the inner idol coming out and manifesting itself with this golden calf. Who would provide for them, right? What does a calf do, right? You milk it. It provides, it provides food, right? It plows up the land, right? It's strong. It provides protection. So let's get this thing going on our own terms. Here's what that means for us in understanding the idols of our heart. I'm going to quote from David Pallison, uh, illustrative uh, biblical counselor. It's a long quote, so stick with me, okay? You guys, you guys in, can, can you buckle in for a long quote? Or are we getting too hot here? We're good? Okay. All right, Felipe's good, so we're good to go. Idols counterfeit aspects of God's identity and character. As can be seen in the examples that we looked up at above in the article, a judge, a savior, a source of blessing, a sin bearer, object of trust, author of a will, of a will that, w- w- um, that which must be obeyed, and so forth, each idol that clusters in the system makes false promises and gives false warnings. If only then, right? If only... I had this happy marriage, then I would be happy, for example. If only I had this provision with a job, then I would be content. If only my kids obeyed my every word and did it exactly as I said, then I would not be angry. He's talking about that dynamic. For example, the wife's enabling behavior expresses an idolatrous playing of the Savior. The idol promises and warns her, if only you can get the right thing and, t- and make it all better, then your husband will change. But if you don't cover for him, then disaster will occur. Because both of the premises of warnings are lies, right? If only you can do this better, then he won't. Service to each idol results in a hangover of misery and accursedness. Idols lie, enslave, and murder. They are continually insinuating, they are continually in, insinuated by one who has a liar, who is a liar, slave master, or murderer from the beginning. He's talking about Satan. They are under the immediate wrath of God, for, who frequently does not allow such things to work well for his wor- in his world. Right? That is the thing that ultimately an idol is a counterfeit characteristic of God. God does provide for his people. He is good for his people. He blesses his people. He loves his people. He protects his people. He does all those things because he is God and he does it in his own way, in his own time, in his own manner. And we want those things on our time, in our manner, in our way. And so we have these counterfeit gods that come out. I want acceptance. We've been accepted by God, but I want it in my own terms. That is the counterfeit God. It mimics and mocks God, which is to say, it rises up and plays in front of God, verse seven. It plays in the face of God. It plays while God is serious, 
about being his goodness and gracious and kindness for us. It plays and mocks his goodness to us. But you see, there is another mountain in view. You see, Moses walked up a mountain and stood between God's wrath and his people. That's what happens in the story. There is another mountain in view at the end of the book of Matthew where Jesus walks up a mountain and is mocked by God's people who rise up and play for their own idols, for example. He walks up a mountain and and utters the, the blessing, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, in our place because our idols are the ones that actually put him on the cross. And Jesus is the one who takes the punishment for that idols deserve, this wrath of God for playing in his face. He takes that wrath for us and then, like the stricken rock, blesses and pours out his life for us to give us eternal life in his name, right? So when we confront our idols and see our idols and I begin to assess them and get a correct diagnosis of them, that in and of itself is the beginning of finding healing in him. That is the beginning of walking down the path with him over the long story to find his grace, to uproot those idols, right? The gospel is what gives us freedom. Jesus himself, because he takes our place, We are forgiven for the idols, for the counterfeit gods that we so dearly grasp onto and love. And we find a savior, the son of God, treated like our counterfeit gods to deliver us and make us sons and daughters of the living God. So a few final questions. Has something else or someone beside Jesus Christ taken the title of your heart's trust and preoccupation and loyalty, service, fear, delight. Has something else come in and sat down in the throne of your heart? Seeing that is the beginning of Jesus relieving you and freeing you from that. Asking the question, what is motivating me, helps us begin to see where are the idols in our hearts? Because the beginning of identifying idols is seeing them clearly so that we can be led to their cure in Jesus. Can we pray? Jesus, as we talk about this topic, there is so much that we could say, and there is so much that we want to enjoy of your goodness for us. And so I pray as we work through this passage that you would enliven us by your spirit to see idolatry in our own hearts clearly, to see your gracious perspective for us, And then I pray that you help us to find its cure in Jesus himself. So in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.